turn in your Bibles to the book of James. We'll be looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I don't think it would be a stretch to say this has been a challenging year. It has been a tough year. In fact, it's been a tough uh, couple of years, I would say. And the church has, in the past, gone through many difficult seasons and has always come out on the other end stronger. And this morning I would like to look at a passage that really has been a motivator for the church for many, many ages to see us through those difficult times when things um, are hard, when trials afflict us, when the difficulties of life press in. This passage has brought comfort to many, and I'd like to expound it. I'd like to explain it so that we too might draw comfort from it as well. It has been a hard year, amen? But in that difficulty, God has been faithful every step of the way. Well, the background of James, let me just give this to you in a nutshell. This is the year is approximately A.D. 44, the year of our Lord, A.D. 44. And the church has been under heavy persecution uh, from Jewish leadership uh, since Acts chapter 2. And now persecution is coming upon the church from the Romans as well. So many have been driven from their homelands. They've had their possessions stripped from them. And many have been killed. And so James, the oldest half-brother of Jesus, and the brother of Jude, is now one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. He is, according to Galatians, called a pillar of the church. A man who denied that Jesus was the Christ prior to the resurrection is now a pastor of one of the most volatile and influential congregations within the body of Christ. So, here's the situation. The the Christians who are being persecuted are accusing God of tempting them to sin in the midst of their trials. They are saying that God has brought this trial into my life to tempt me to sin. And that's why James addresses the issue that God tempts no one to sin, but they're tempted by their own desires uh, that have run amok. Now, God does bring trials into our lives as a result of his providence. We know that for sure. We know that God uses evil for his purposes. He subjects evil to his purposes, but always for our good. Always for our good. So James writes this letter to give them the correct theological perspective, if you will, on their difficulties and suffering. And that's why I've titled this, Your Theology is What Gets You Through. We used to have a pastor, a a dear friend, who's with the Lord now, who used to always tell us that your theology is what gets you through the hard places in life. I took that to heart, and it has been true. What we believe about God and His sovereignty and His providence and His working in our lives, you either believe in a sovereign God or you don't. 
And if you believe in a sovereign God, then, then everything that comes your way, everything that happens to you in your life is by des- divine purpose. And for our good. And it may be difficult to see that in the moment, but as you look back and survey your life, you can see that even the hardest times of your life have produced the greatest Christian growth in your life. So we've all faced trials in one form or another, I I would venture to say. Is there anybody here that has not faced a trial? Let me see your hand. So, my Christmas gift to you this morning is, is to give you two instructions that will help you to flourish in Christian maturity as you go through life's trials. Two instructions to help you along your way as you go through those dark seasons of life. Why don't you look at the text with me? We're looking at James chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, Lacking in nothing. So the first instruction I want to give you this morning, my first half of your Christmas gift, is to calibrate your perspective. My first instruction to you, you must calibrate your perspective. You'll see that in verses 1 and 2. And I know what you're thinking. This seems like a crackpot way to bring comfort to hurting people, right? Have you lost your mind, Pastor? Well, no. This is the Word of God speaking to you, not me. This is not the normal tact I would take, but this is certainly what the Apostle James is telling us this morning. So there's two ways to calibrate your perspective in these verses. And the first one is to relinquish your perceived rights. See that in verse 1. Relinquish your perceived rights. Rights. Notice right off the bat how James identifies himself. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The reality is that having a right perspective about suffering means having a right perspective about ourselves and what we think we are entitled to. The word bondservant is literally the word doulos in the Greek, and you'll probably recognize that word it's usually translated as slave and many translations have tried to sanitize the word because of uh, past issues with slavery but the reality is in biblical times a slave was the property of another and they had no rights they had no rights They submitted to their masters as lords. So we miss something when we accept the translation servant. When you look at your New Testament, Paul, Timothy, James, Peter, and Jude, they all describe themselves as bond slaves. 
They're slaves of Christ. And it was meant metaphorically to describe their absolute devotion to Jesus Christ as Lord. I was surprised to see in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as Lord much more than he's ever referred to as Savior. Did you know that? Jesus Christ is Lord. The word is used, uh, the, the word bondservant or slave is used 127 times in the New Testament. 127 times. So the concept of being a slave of Christ is more than a mere theological dispute. It's more than a matter of one's pride being wounded. It's an essential component of the gospel. Jesus Christ is Lord of all, and one cannot be saved and serve two masters. And James places Christ on the same level as God the Father. The text literally reads, James, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, a slave. So the term meant, as one writer put it, the supreme and absolute authority of the master and the entire submission of the slave. That's an adjustment in our perspective, isn't it? (laughs) We need to relinquish our perceived rights. James and the other apostles had relinquished their perceived rights and were wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus Christ. What could man do to them, right? They could be killed. They could be tortured. They could have their possessions revoked. What, what could man do to them? What's the worst thing that could happen? They could die. Then they get to be with their Lord and Master. There's really nothing that man could do to them. Listen to me. This issue of perceived rights has become a cancer, an absolute cancer in the culture that we find ourselves in. The problem is that it stands in polar opposition to the message of the gospel and how we are supposed to live in light of the gospel. You have no rights. If you want to flourish in the midst of trials, you're going to have to change your perspective. And you're going to have to understand that you really don't have any rights living under the rule of a sovereign God. Your rights are secondary to his rule. John MacArthur says it this way. But the language of slavery does more than merely picture the gospel. In fact, it is central to the message of salvation. That is because the slavery metaphor points to the reality of Christ's lordship. And the lordship of Christ is essential to the biblical gospel. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans 6.22, But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. 
freed from sin. You have been freed from sin, and you are now free to be a slave. Ironic, isn't it? But in becoming a slave to the Lordship of Christ, what lies at the other end? Salvation. Salvation. So we must relinquish our perceived rights. The second way to calibrate your perspective in these verses is to reconsider your previous responses to trials. To trials. Verse 2, James says, consider it or reckon or regard it as, count it as, all joy when you encounter various trials. That's nutty, isn't it? It's crazy. All joy is emphatic within the text. If you look at it in the original language, it's pushed forward in the sentence. So it literally reads, All joy, consider it, my brethren. It could be translated as unmixed joy, whole joy, pure joy. You get the point. Now think about who James is writing to. Just take a look up at verse 1. To the twelve tribes, by the way, the ten northern tribes were not lost. Who's James writing to? The twelve tribes. He knows where they are. But he's writing to his countrymen who have been scattered and dispersed because of persecution. They're, they're experiencing persecution. They're being driven from their lands. They're hated by their fellow countrymen. They've been scattered to the four corners of the earth. And James says, All joy, consider it, my brethren. And notice that he doesn't say that the trials themselves are joyous. Obviously not. But as a sheer act of will... He says you must consider them as joy. Joyful. All joy. Pure joy. James is saying embrace the pain. Embrace the pain. Because there's a purpose that is God's purpose within the trial that is for your ultimate good. Man, that is a hard perspective to grab, isn't it? But James is telling them, you need to recalibrate how you are perceiving these trials. They are not for your bad. They are for your good. Think about the story of Joseph. When he talked to his brothers at the end of the book of Genesis, do you remember what he said to them? You intended it for evil, but what? God meant it for good. That was an overriding. The veil of God's providence had been pulled back and we were able to see the hand of God moving in all of that. By moving God's people down to Egypt, they were able to multiply safe and secure in the womb of Egypt. Up to millions of Jews came out of there in the Exodus. They went down there with 
a handful. God helped them to survive famine by bringing them down there. And then when the time was right, he, he brought them out. Notice the word encounter. It actually carries the idea of falling into difficult circumstances. Falling into them or finding yourself suddenly surrounded by unanticipated difficulties, if I could say it that way. They've sort of come upon you and now you've encountered them. I say this because the text does not encourage you to go out and find trouble. God does have other means of sanctifying you. Trials are not the only way to find joy in life. But James is talking about those times in life when you fall or when these people fell into difficulties unexpectedly. Unexpectedly. And what trials? Various trials. Various means manifold, variegated, literally multicolored. In the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it was the word that was used to describe Joseph's color, uh, coat. It, it was variegated. It was multicolored. So what's meant by various trials? Well, the Apostle Paul gave us good insight into this in 2 Corinthians 11:23 to 28. So you want to be an apostle. Here's what you're going to face. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, Five times received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, Dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. How in the world did the Apostle Paul stand up under that? I have no idea. For James and the early church leaders, various trials meant about the worst you could imagine. Loss of possessions, torture, imprisonment, loss of life, or any other possible type of persecution. Just take a look over at Acts 12, 1 to 3. You don't have to turn there right now, but when you get a moment, just take a peek. Let me me read this for you. The traditional accounts of the deaths of the apostles and the deacons. Just so you know what they went through in their day. You'll remember Stephen 
he was stoned to death and things just sort of went downhill from there. The Apostle James, the brother of John, was killed by Herod Agrippa in A.D. 44, which is probably about the time that this letter was written. The Apostle Philip was scourged, imprisoned, and crucified in Hierapolis in Scythia, which is modern-day Turkey in A.D. 54. The Apostle Andrew, crucified in A.D. 60. The Apostle Matthew, slain on the orders of King of Ethiopia in 60 A.D., according to church tradition. The Apostle Simon, zealotus. He was crucified by the Roman Catus, I'm going to have a hard time saying this name, Decianus, in what is now Lincolnshire, Britain, in A.D. 61. The Apostle James, the son of Alphaeus, stoned to death by the Jews while preaching in Jerusalem, A.D. 62. James the Just, who was the author of this book, martyred by stoning in A.D. 62 by the order of the high priest of Israel. Jude, also known as Thaddeus, martyred with an axe in Beirut, the Roman uh, province of Syria in A.D. 65. The Apostle Paul, as we know, was imprisoned and beheaded in Rome around A.D. 67. The Apostle Peter was crucified upside down in Rome by Emperor Nero in A.D. 67. Thomas was killed by castration in India in A.D. 72. Bartholomew, he was martyred by being skinned alive and flayed and beheaded at the command of the Armenian king sometime in the first century. Matthias was martyred in A.D. 80 by crucifixion, and then he was chopped apart for evangelizing Cappadocia in central Turkey. John, the Apostle John, was exiled and imprisoned in Patmos by Titus. He was later recalled by Emperor Nerva from Patmos, and he was the only one of the disciples to escape a violent death. Although some have said that he was actually uh, plunged into boiling oil and miraculously escaped unscathed. That story cannot be verified. The record of his death is really unclear. Why do I read you that? Well, because the text says, and the point is, rejoice? Really? Rejoice? Why in the world should they consider these various trials which they were falling into pure joy? I don't know about you, but the first thing I do when things get difficult is I complain. What do you mean the air conditioner went out? What do you mean I have to be uncomfortable? I don't like it. I even respond at times with anger. What do you mean rejoice? Well, 
James could tell them this because of what they knew to be true about God and His Word. Think about our Lord's words in the Sermon on the Mount. They should be ringing in your ears right about now. Think about Matthew chapter 5. You can turn there if you want. Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 to 12. Uh, This is no different than what Jesus said. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're in good company. You're in good company if the world hates you. Look at Luke chapter 6, verses 22 to 23. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn you, uh, scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. It's kind of backwards, isn't it? It seems kind of backwards. I mean, we were blessed, really? We really have no idea what it means to be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Not really. I mean, we don't live where pastors are being taken out and shot or locked up or beheaded. We don't have to watch our children be ripped from our arms and thrown to the lions. But I do believe we can all identify with the truth that life brings various trials and difficulties. For the first century Jews, these were their trials. It doesn't mean they're ours, but for here, for us here in the 21st century, we have different kinds of trials. Life is full of ups and downs, and many of you have come here this morning with burdens and crosses to bear, heartaches and hurts, and I'm not minimizing any of those. See, James' definition of trials encompasses everything from, from setbacks Things that cast us down, things people say that are injurious or annoying or insulting, even perceived problems, false accusations. And I'm asking you this morning, what is it that gets you through the difficult times? How do you cope? Do you suck it up? Or do you curl up and suck your thumb? Do you just get through it somehow? Maybe let enough time pass and it'll go away? Do you get angry? Do you blame other people for your problems? Maybe you blame God. Do you go so far as to blame God for your difficulties? Oh, I don't know. Maybe you... You're an escape personality and you get depressed. 
Or maybe you become anxious. Or maybe you drink to excess so you don't have to feel pain. I don't know, this is Idaho. Maybe you invoke the spirit of the pioneers. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. Maybe you just keep a stiff upper lip and try not to cry. Or as James says, do you consider your difficulties as pure joy? See, we get on our pity pots and we say things like, I'll do my best impression of myself here. Why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? When's this going to stop? And James gives us the answer here to all of our problems. He says, consider it pure joy when you encounter various trials. Don't just get through them, but rejoice in them. And grow through them. Now, some try to split hairs here in their fanciful exegesis, and they say that it's only the encounter with the trial that we're supposed to consider joyful, not the trial itself. It's when we first encounter it. Like, hi, welcome into my life trial, now go away. (laughs) I can't get there on that, I'm sorry, but... The text seems to indicate that as you are going through the trial, you're supposed to consider it joy. Our former pastor, I told you, used to say your theology is what gets you through the hard places in life. And as I said earlier, do you or do you not believe in a sovereign God? Does God work through providence? Is it yin and yang, an eternal struggle between evil and good, and neither one can win. They both just sort of play off of each other. Or is God sovereignly over evil and trials and everything else is subject to Him? If we believe that He is sovereign, then you have to go with the latter. You have to say these trials are in my life for a reason. God has allowed them into my life for my good. And therefore, I can find joy even in the trials. It's a change of perspective, beloved. Romans 8.28, probably my favorite verse in the Bible. We know that God causes, notice the word causes, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. Do you know that? See, God is after results in your life. He has a purpose in your trials. And it may seem like we just fall into them. But the reality is that God, through his providence and his eternal decree, has intended them and planned them for a purpose. 
What are his purposes? What good could God possibly have for me in this? I'm glad you asked me that. That leads us to our second instruction this morning, my second half of your gift, and that is to celebrate God's providence, verses 3 to 4. Two purposes of God's providential work in a believer's life through trials. There are really two purposes in this text. The first is endurance or perseverance. Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. It's right there laying on the surface. It's interesting language here. Testing has the idea of proving or trying by testing by a trial. In order to find the genuine element in your faith that has to be tested. Which then works or produces endurance or what we might say staying power. Staying power. So the first purpose of trials is that they test the genuineness of your faith by producing a desired result, namely endurance in the faith. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. The Apostle Paul says, and not only this, but we exult in our tribulations. Oh, that's... A little bit more than just having joy. We exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So these trials are a daisy chain in the Apostle Paul's mind. Trials and tribulations are part of a chain of character building that leads to a fixed hope. Now, if you write nothing else down this morning, if you hear nothing else I say, listen to this. The important thing is that according to both of these writers, it is the testing process itself that develops perseverance. It's the testing process itself. Why do I say that? Well, I'm going to... I have to do a little grammar here. I apologize. But the word develops, the verb... It's what's known as an emphatic compound form of the verb to work. So the word develop is actually the word work, but it has an attached preposition to it. It has a prefixed preposition, which gives it the sense of to work down or work through. In other words, the work is is to be continued until the task has been worked down to a successful conclusion. The production of perseverance. In other words, the trial itself, the testing, works down in you to produce 
perseverance. It builds that character quality in you. I like the way one author said this. He said, affliction lets down a blazing torch for the Christian into the depths of his own nature. And he sees many things which he little expected to see. You know, if you've ever read the book of Job, you know this, right? Why did Job go through what he went through? I mean, you're given insight into what's going on in heaven, right? And God says, you know, Satan comes before him and God says what? Have you considered my servant Job? Why? Why do the righteous suffer? What is the purpose of that book? It's there for a reason. When you get through it all, you know, Job is defending himself. He's defending himself. His friends are telling him he somehow deserved it. He deserved what he got. And what we find out in that book, it's very insightful. insightful. We find we find out that Job had a little bastion of self-righteousness in his heart where his defense started turning into, look at me. And so all that evil that happened in Job's life happened for a reason. To dig out that self-righteousness like a splinter out of his heart. God had a purpose in all of that. There was a lesson to be learned. Trials can show us that we are neither as strong nor as wise as we think we are. Right? They grant us much needed humility and perspective. Trials can also reveal strengths and graces we never imagined could be ours. If you know anything about metallurgy, you have to melt the rocks if you want the metal. Right? You have to melt it. And you have to clear off the dross. And you purify metal in the process. And it becomes more and more pure. More and more refined. I was doing a little research and I watched some YouTube videos, <laughs> as I am wont to do. And I was uh, looking up because I remember hearing something about Shaolin priests over in the Far East. And okay, yeah, I like martial arts, so don't judge. But anyway, the Shaolin priests, they learn uh, this thing called the Iron Fist Method. I don't know if you're familiar with this or not. But basically, they take bags full of rocks and they smack them with their hand front and back constantly. They punch trees with their fingertips. They kick trees with their shins and their, their whole body, basically. Uh, they do this sort of thing, too. They even do it to their throats. Um, one of the most vulnerable places on the human body. 
And you have to ask yourself, why? Well, there's a method to the madness, and that is that by doing this, they create a series of micro-fractures in the bones. And then they heal them. And by fracturing and healing, it becomes stronger. And it becomes stronger. And it becomes stronger. To the point where they no longer feel pain, they've numbed the nerves, and the bones themselves are so hard that they can chop a brick in half with their bare hands. And they can chop bricks with their fingertips. I watched the videos. It's real. (laughs) So why do I say that? Because trials have a tendency to do this. They, They make you stronger over time by injuring you. They build muscles of faith. They strengthen bones so that when the trials come the next time, if you've learned from them, you will not crumble or crumple like a styrofoam cup. John Calvin said it this way, Our experience in grappling with evil and overcoming it leads us to experience how much God's help avails in crisis. So you have to be put into positions where you need to rely on God to see you through the trial in order to develop strength of faith. If your faith were never tested, guess what? It would be scrawny, pale, anemic. You would be a spiritual pygmy. See, the Christian life is not a hundred meter dash. It's a moral marathon. And the testing of trials produces endurance, perseverance. Without trials, you would get soft and lazy. And you would not stand up to testing. You would not make it to the finish line. The second purpose in God's providential work through trials is perfection or completeness. And let endurance have its perfect result. That you may be perfect and complete or mature, lacking in nothing. I'm not arguing for complete sanctification here. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we can achieve perfection in this life. It's not what I'm saying. We're talking about Christian maturity here. We're talking about maturity. Think about 1 Peter 1, 6-9. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. That the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him, and though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith 
the salvation of your souls. The work of salvation is covered by three word groups in the New Testament. Think about it with me. We have been saved. We are being saved. And we will be saved, right? We have been sanctified. We are being sanctified. And we will be sanctified. We have been perfected. We are being perfected, and we will be perfected. All three are happening to you right now. And when we see Christ face to face, it'll all become a reality for us. See, James and the other apostles are telling their readers, and by extension us, And we need a long view on this. We need an eternal perspective. We need to celebrate God's providence, which is at work in our lives. Because it's all part of the process of maturing us in our faith until we see Christ and obtain ultimate maturity and perfection. It's what will keep us in the game. And at that point, sin will be gone. And we will enjoy complete sanctification. No more sin. No more presence of sin in these bodies. No more suffering. No more pain. No more trials. Our faith will become sight. Perseverance results in maturity or completeness in the Christian faith. Uh, One writer said this, If perseverance is the journey then completeness is the destination. I want you to take notice of the sequence here. There are trials. James tells us, consider it pure joy, which results in perseverance, then maturity, then completeness. Now think about this with me. We tend to think it more appropriate to put joy at the end of the cycle, as a result, once the pain of persevering is done, right? If I can just get through this trial, what awaits me on the other side is what? Joy, right? Is that what James is telling us? Now, he's telling us joy is the power behind our perseverance that helps us through the midst of the trials. See, joy looks ahead to the reward which will be garnered at the final goal. And it causes us to persevere unto maturity. So in this sense, our calling is to joy. After all, what's the fruit of the Spirit? Love. Joy. Why do you think it's there? We can't muster joy in our flesh, by the way. You cannot come up with that on your own. When you're in the midst of trials, as I said, 
the first thing that we can muster up on our own is either anger or self-pity or worry. But if we're walking in the Spirit, what's that going to look like? Gonna be love. Gonna be joy. Gonna be peace. Right? It's gonna be patience. John MacArthur says this the more we rejoice in our testings, the more we realize that they are not liabilities, but privileges. Ultimately beneficial and not harmful. No matter how destructive and painful the immediate experience of them might appear. You understand that? They're not liabilities. They're privileges. I use a bookkeeping analogy here. You don't put it in the the negative column, you put it in the positive column, right? It's not a liability, it's an asset. Trials are assets in your life. That is a change of perspective, eh? That is a change of perspective. And that's how James can say, what's that last phrase there? Mature Christians lack nothing. They don't want for anything. They have everything at their disposal because of their faith union with Christ because of the indwelling spirit they can face anything and only come out the other end stronger your theology is what gets you through the hard places in life what we know to be true about God. He is sovereign and He works all things together for our good. He is loving. He is just. He is merciful. He is compassionate. He is gracious. If we believe that God is sovereign and He is, then we must calibrate our perspective to bring it in line with what we know to be true about reality. And we must celebrate His providence. And I think only in this way will we flourish through the trials of life and bring glory to our Lord and Master. And as we pass through the fire of testing, we're going to come out the other side as refined gold, a more pure, strengthened, mature believer. I just have three questions for you to contemplate here at the end. Just write these down and give some thought to them this week. Just to make application. As you look over your life, Is there really any such thing as falling into a trial? 
if we believe in a providential, sovereign God? Are there accidents? Think about it. Secondly, ask yourself this as you look back over your life. Do you find that you have grown through trials? Or do you just get through them? Do you, do you wring your hands in frustration and say, oh no, not again? Or do you say, yes! <laughs> this is awesome because this is going to grow us. This is going to grow us like nobody's business. And we're going to come out the other end of this much better than we did. Much better than we were before. Ask yourself that. Have you grown through the trials of your life? Third, are you only able to find joy when the trials are over? Am I only able to find joy when the trials are over? You know, I have to thank my wife for this because we've been married 30 years now and I am one of these people who tend to think, okay, when I get to the other end of this and it's over with, then I can be happy. I'm challenging myself here. I'm preaching this to myself, folks. And my wife always used to tell me, what did you tell me? Yes, I remember. There's no perfect life. There's just life. You don't have to wait till the trial is over to find joy. Because, because God is using the trial itself to create in you perseverance, maturity, hope, and beloved, you can't put a price on those things. This last year has been tough. And I guarantee you there are tough years ahead. But I hope that James' instruction for you this morning will encourage you to grow in Christian maturity through those trials. I pray you will find joy even in the midst of the heartache. Because it's a genuine evidence of your sonship in Christ. God scourges His sons. It's evidence of our sonship. And God has promised to work good in your life and to bring you to completeness. So, beloved, I pray to that end this year that we would find joy in the midst of suffering and that our theology will get us through the tough places in life. Let's pray.